This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. She didn't want to come out. I, at that time, didn't want to either. But as it happened, my life kind of unfolded exactly the way I think it needed to. But I regret the way that I handled her heart. I regret it. I fucked it up. Come on, man. Let's go. Let's get done one more time. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures, our more fragile moments, are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. This episode includes explicit conversations about suicide. Please take care while listening. If you or someone you know is struggling, please know help is available 24-7. Call or text 988 to reach the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And there are more resources in the show notes. If you hear paper rustling, it's because I'm looking at a photograph of Shelley Wright from 1995, where she won the Academy of Country Music Award for Top New Female Vocalist. If you looked up country music star, you would see this picture. She is that quintessential country girl from Kansas with the blonde hair and the light eyes, strawberry blonde, I think. She's holding this award, the step and repeat that artists in Nashville work their entire careers to get, and she is at the top. I first met Shelly around this time in the mid-90s. We were both signed to A&M Records, the Polygram system, and we became fast friends. But when I'm looking at this photo of her, what I didn't know is while in her acceptance speech, Shelly said it's the greatest night of her life. She was also hiding the greatest secret of her life and would continue to hide that secret for years. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be a person who is very public, outward facing, seen one way, and yet inside you feel it's a lie. Eventually, Shelley would figure out that the truth is going to win. It's going to win out over trying to meet some preset expectations of what a country singer is supposed to be or a woman of God is supposed to be. And she became the first major country star to come out as gay. I mean, really stand up and say, this is who I am. Shelly Wright, in addition to being my dear, dear friend, you're a chart-topping singer, songwriter, award winner, activist, author of Like Me, and now chief diversity officer at Unispace. And I'm just grateful that you're here for, yeah, I fucked that up. 
Billy. I'm excited to be here for Yeah, I Fucked That Up. I've got a laundry list of things that we can (laughs) get into. Start with growing up in Kansas and finding your way to music, because I know you were musical, but how did that start? Yeah, so I grew up in a, a town called Wellsville, Kansas. And at that time, it was the population was about 1,000, 1,200 people, K through 12 in the same building, you know, about 45 minutes outside of Kansas City. We had records laying around the house. My parents and everyone in my family plays and or sings. And my mother loved songwriters and had a three-ring binder of handwritten song lyrics. She'd sit by the radio and write them out. She was really quite discerning about what made a good song and who was a good writer. And that's what we did for fun. I was poor and we had three guitars in the living room and at one point a drum kit and a PA system at another point. And your dad was a musician, right? He, he, yeah, my yeah. dad's a really great acoustic guitar player. And so it thrilled my folks that I could sing and I could sit mm. down at a piano and they called me the human jukebox. I just, I loved it. When I hear a Connie Smith record or a Loretta Lynn record, I have a visceral response. And I'm sure a lot of that is tied to how it felt to sit on the floor with my parents and drop the needle on a piece of vinyl. Like, and it was all country, right? It was all country, except the Beatles were in the mix. So for a long time, I thought the Beatles were a country band because we were a country household. Anyway, the long and the short of it is... I decided when I was four, that's what I want to do. And my parents were not stage parents. They didn't push me to do it, but they said, you know, get good grades, stay out of jail. We don't care what you do. Just be good at it. And so as the legend goes, I was four or five years old when I went missing in my hometown. There was a barbecue happening in our backyard and someone realized, where's Shelly? Ultimately, they found me an hour later at the nursing home, and I had pulled up a bunch of old people, locked their wheelchairs, and I was playing piano and singing Frankie and Johnny to them. So I began piano lessons when I was five and a half and started writing songs, really bad songs. I was a straight-A student. I followed all the rules. That was all to like provide a means for me to be able to do music. The older I get, the more I look back on how special growing up in that community was. Everyone from the time I declared that I was going to be a country star and my kindergarten teacher would let me get up and play a song, everyone was like, yeah, can't wait to buy your records. When people affirm your dreams, when you say your dream out loud and people say, yeah, I'm in, it's really powerful. When did you first go out and play in front of people where your dream began to manifest? I was babysitting for a neighbor, Dale and Mary Reese. They had a band called Joe Cowboy, and they played VFWs, honky-tonks, dance halls. And they got home one night from a gig. They said, were you playing that piano? And I said, yes. And they said, are are you any good? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And they said, do you play a couple of songs for us? And I did and sang. And they said, so this is crazy, but go home and ask your parents if you can play a gig with us next weekend. Our piano player either quit or died. I'm not sure. And I asked my parents and they said, yeah, sure. So I went to a bar mm. when I was nine and sat in with this band. And they had me do a couple of songs solo. I was accompanying. And after that gig, I ended up being hired by this band. I was in that band for about a year and a half, two years, and then they fired me. And they fired you because? They fired me. I went went for rehearsal 
And they, they sat me down and they said, uh, we're going to have to let you go. And I said, why? And they said, because you are like, I was nagging them about, we have to rehearse more. We got to get better. And they said, you know, we're just, we just like to play music and we have full-time jobs and you're more serious about us being great than we are. And you need to probably start your own band and, and take that on. I was devastated, but I ended up starting my own band. So this is when you're about nine, ten years old. I love asking people this question. Who was your best friend then? Tracy McDaniel and Janet Kramer. And when I was nine, I realized I was gay. And as it turns out, Janet is gay. I didn't know that Janet was gay until we were older. After I came out, she texted me and she said, oh, my God, like, Oh, I wish I wish we could have talked about this all, all these years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. This, I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. Wait. Okay. Stop for a second. Yeah. You have Tracy and Janet. Yeah. Your two best friends. Yeah. Two out of three of you mm-hmm. are holding this secret. Yep. As little kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Janet and I have talked a lot about this. There was just an understanding that that was not okay. And since I came out, which was in 2010, there was still no one in that little town who was acknowledging being gay. I did hear from people in Wellsville the day I came out, May 5th, 2010, on the Today Show. I did hear in maybe 24, 48 hours after that, that kids in that school were going to the counselor's office and coming out. On that day. Wow. What was that like for you to hear that? Really healing. It never occurred to me what might happen in Wellsville. I I think my solitary focus was about country music and my kind of where I sat in that conversation and with fans and the industry. I think I actually kind of forgot that I'd been held up for so long in that community and in that school as hometown girl made good, right? There's a street in Wellsville named after me. When you get off the interstate, there's a big sign. (laughs) Right? But you know, I I want to give some context to people listening to this because what I think can't get lost is for people that either aren't into country music or don't understand the country music community. There's like sort of the pop country and then there's like the country country and then there's the honky tonk scene and Mm -hmm. radio is still just a major driver. And the people at radio are kind of like a little Congress representing their constituents. And their constituents are really, really conservative. So even when you get to Nashville and you talk to some of the leaders in the country music world who are wonderful people and can be very open-minded, they also are connected to this Congress. That's what I wanted to go to with this, which is, You knew since you were nine. Yep. You finally get to Nashville. You get your record deal. And all of these songs are about the man Mm -hmm. that you love. What was that like? I love that you talk about this Congress that is terrestrial radio because that was very real. They come to Nashville, much like a politician goes to Capitol Hill, and they bring with them kind of a mandate a laundry list of what's appropriate, what works, who gets to be a star, and they are the gatekeepers. And so, you know, the thing about the music industry is that it's a business, and we all 
collectively, whether overtly, linguistically, non-linguistically, we all kind of, there, there were winks and nods about what was appropriate and what was not. And it was very well established that you don't get to be a gay country artist. And how do we know that? And, you know, people have said, yeah, but how do you know? You should have just come out. They may have accepted you. How do I know that? Because no one had ever acknowledged being a gay artist before. You have to imagine for the person listening to this that Shelley Wright is at the top of the country game. This is a number one single, award winner, singing at the Grand Ole Opry, America's Daughter. What is the first time when you, the pressure of holding the secret in your career, even in the early stage of your career, where it was like, you know, whoops? Yeah. Well, I didn't go from having my band in Kansas to stardom in, in, in country music. So I moved to Nashville when I was 18. Tested out of high school a week early, you know, got Mm -hmm. straight A's, good student, got to Nashville. And so by that time, I had stopped praying a prayer that I'd been praying since I was nine years old when I realized I was gay. And the prayer that I prayed every single day of my life, this is not hyperbole, every day, was, Dear God, I promise to be a good person. I promise not to lie, to steal. Just make me not gay. In your name, I pray. Amen. So by the time I was 17 or 18, I'd stopped saying that prayer because I, I, I realized that, okay, if I'm meant to be changed, God would have changed me. Made the world in seven days, but it's taken a hell of a long time to change me or fix me, right? So I'm, this must be who I am. And so by the time I got to Nashville, I, I wasn't praying that prayer anymore, but I was praying a new prayer, which was, dear God, please help me keep my secret. Because I knew that two things couldn't exist. I couldn't be a country music singer, songwriter, and be authentically me. So that was a secret I locked down. And when you're 19, 20, 21, signing record contracts, you're dumb enough to think, I can spin this plate. I've got that plate to spin. I I can do this. I can be the one to mastermind this. Also, I thought that there had never actually been another gay artist in country music that had hidden it. I thought I was the first, and how dare I think that I could do this, but I also know I'm a pretty skilled multitasker, so I thought I will be the one who can do this. But when you're 19, 20, 21, you don't realize what role companionship and love and authenticity will play in your life. So, And I got into a relationship at age 23 with a woman that I was involved with for 12 years. We had a home, pets, a koi pond, a saltwater tank with filled with fish, a life. But we were in the closet. And so, you know, to your question, when did I realize I couldn't actually manage it was, you know, the night I almost ended my life. And so the morning after I didn't end my life, she and I had broken up and sold the house, bought separate houses. And I realized, oh, shit, This is going to be my life, a rinse and repeat of bumping into other unhealthy people in the closet. Not unhealthy because we were gay, but unhealthy because, you know, nothing grows in the closet. I'm curious about when you were a kid managing the feelings inside yourself and the expectations of community. When you did something wrong, where did the judgment come from in your house as a kid? Or did your siblings fail, and did you see them feel the consequences? So 
schooling came easy for me. Mm. A straight-A student, homecoming queen, captain of the basketball team, that's attached to all this kind of hero behavior that you feel like you have to do because someday they're going to find out this bad thing about you, right? My sister was overweight, and that was a failure in my parents' eyes. My brother was not as macho as they thought he needed to be. So he got picked on a little bit at school. He would go on to be a 30-year decorated Marine. He was an athlete. He was a good kid. But he got picked on a little bit because he wouldn't, you know, he was he didn't have that kind of bravado that boys were supposed to have. For me, I was very well aware of what it would feel like to disappoint or fail my parents. And so my I had a mandate, you just can't. I took my temperature every day in 1987 because I knew that I was going to have AIDS because on the nightly news, they were calling it the gay cancer. So when you are in the Midwest, a person of faith, seeing an epidemic unfold around the world that is called the gay cancer, I knew I was going to have it. So I knew at some point... My parents were going to know my big fat lie, my big fat secret, didn't know how they would know it. So I had a balance sheet of perfection. I also was trying to be perfect because I wanted to achieve what I wanted to achieve and it was going to take focus. We're talking about when people fuck things up, right? Yeah. And typically I'll have a conversation with someone and they'll think of a moment or several moments. But do you think, as we're talking about this on a macro level, that if there's a place where you'd say where I failed, my biggest fuck up yeah. was the thought that you could manage this. I wouldn't call it a fuck up. I attach a fuck up to kind of a when you know you're acting in a way that is counter to doing the right thing. So I thought not being gay was the right thing to do. And then I thought hiding that I was gay yeah, it it made me a liar. You lie by omission. But I thought on the whole, this is the best thing to do. I I also needed to survive, right? So my hobby wasn't singing. That was my job. My jo- The way that I ate food and paid my rent was I wrote songs and I made records and I toured. This wasn't a hobby. The stakes were high for me. I don't come from a family with means. I couldn't go home, so the stakes were high. I look at an, oh my God, I fucked that up, as when I could go one way and I went the other. And I have some real obvious things that kind of rattle around in my head. In 2005, I had a conversation with a fellow artist in country music, John Rich, that scared the shit out of me. We'd been at the studio, then we went to his house, and we'd been friends since we were 19. Mm. And... He'd had a couple of beers. He was driving me back to my car. And before I got out, he said, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He said, are you gay? And I remember the moment like it was yesterday. I took a pause and I assessed kind of my safety level. And I realized that, uh uh-oh, I'm about to cross the Rubicon here. I'm about to actually lie out loud. No one had ever asked me that question. And I knew I was going into new territory. It's one thing to lie by a mission. It's one thing to train the public and people in the industry to not ask questions like that. But he asked it, and I paused and took a breath and said, 
no, I'm not gay. And he said, well, good, because if you are, that's not okay. That'll never, you know, that's not cool. Country music will never have it. You know, he went on a kind of a rant. And then I went home, and the next morning I told my partner, we have to break up. And she was devastated, and I was devastated, but I I was very cold. And, you know, basically I prioritized me, my selfishness, my career, protecting myself. It scares me how kind of bifurcated I was able to become. Right, but when you said before those fuck-ups that you're thinking of rattling around in your brain and you know what they are. Mm-hmm. So is fuck-up number one, John asking you and you saying no? No, that was that was one of the smartest, best things I did. My fuck-up was the cruelty and the compartmentalization that I used to separate from my partner, whom I loved. It, it, breakups are hard, right? Try breaking up with someone that you don't want to break up with. That's really hard. And someone that you love and that you care about and want to spend the rest of your life with. It was cruel. I didn't give her full insight. In fact, I didn't tell her that day that the conversation I had with John Rich, it would take a while. In fact, I think it was like a week before we moved out and, you know, sold the house and each bought separate homes. I didn't tell her until later exactly why. I had broken up with her. I did tell her, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. And that was, I should have let her in and shared with her what was happening. Maybe we could have found a way through it. I know it would have saved her some confusion and heartbreak. And, and, and do I think we would have stayed together? Probably not. She didn't want to come out. I, at that time, didn't want to either. But as it happened... My life kind of unfolded exactly the way I think it needed to, but I regret the way that I handled her heart. I regret it. I fucked it up. And also the way you handled your own. Oh, the crimes I committed against myself were many. Yeah, I almost pulled the trigger with a nine millimeter gun. Fucked that up. That's, you know, I didn't pull the trigger, but just the, by virtue of having the end of a cold nine millimeter gun in your mouth, that's, you, you don't get there without messing up. I didn't get there without making a lot of mistakes. I wonder, as a father, my first thought is, if one of my kids was in that position, I would think, why didn't, why didn't they call me? That's my first thought. And so I, I'm curious, did you feel like you would have been able to call your dad to say, um, this is what's going on? In hindsight, yes. In that moment, no, it was just too big. It was too, it was too much. And, and I was so whittled down spiritually, emotionally, physically, you're not thinking right by virtue of that scenario. Some things are not happening. Mental health is not there. I'm often asked why I didn't pull the trigger. And I know the moment I put the gun down was, you know, I was looking in the mirror of a, my East Nashville house there had an old hundred, it was a hundred year old house at the time. And it had a 
mirror in the fireplace there in the front foyer. And I'd taken that gun that my parents had given to me, by the way, for protection. And I remembered thinking, why am I not crying? I just always figured when people end their life, they must be like a mess and crying. And I had stopped crying. I had just been crying for months and just, I was, I think, numb. I asked God to please forgive me for what I was about to do. And I thought about my partner. And I thought, and I was so cold. I'd been so cold for months. I thought about, God, it would be just great to be out of this pain. But the one thought I had that I think is why I put the gun down is I thought about my sister. We were very close and are very close, and we texted or talked every day and have since we were young. And I thought, you know what? If I do this, she's going to call me tomorrow. She's not going to be able to reach me. She's going to wait five hours. She's going to call me again. She's not going to be able to reach me. And she'll probably get in her car and drive to Nashville and use the key that she has to my home. She's going to open that front door, and she's going to find me. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I put the gun down, and I went upstairs, and I slept for a few hours, and I woke up, and it was still dark, but it was morning. And I was pulled to go back downstairs. I just thought, I'm going to go back down, and I, I'm probably going to do it. And so I did something that was different. Uh, I got on my knees and prayed a different prayer. I told you about that prayer I prayed mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And then I told you how when I got to Nashville, I prayed for God to help me keep my secret. And the prayer that came out of my mouth on that cold morning was a prayer I hadn't ever said before. And it was, Dear God, if there's a way for me, I need to know it now. In your name I pray. Amen. And I barely hand over my heart. The minute I said amen, I, f- it was, I felt like someone was pouring warm water over me. And that was hope. And I knew I was going to come out, which was terrifying. It was like not good news, like, oh, yes, this is the answer. It was like, oh, holy shit, I've got to come out. But I knew that there was a way to get through it. I knew it was going to be the hardest thing I'd ever done, but I knew I'm either going to die or I'm going to fight for myself. And I went downstairs and opened my laptop, opened up a Word document, and on the first page in giant font, I wrote, like me, and I began writing. This is my book, and if one person reads it, this is what I'm doing. I'm not just telling my truth. I'm telling my whole goddamn truth. Because it's mine, and I get to tell it, and I'm worth it. And I deserve to tell my truth. To come from a place where your parents give you a 9 millimeter to protect yourself from the outside forces and then for that to convert to to protect myself from myself, which in a way is what was probably in this process. How did you go back to your parents from there? There is a reason 
no one had ever in country music acknowledged being a gay artist until I came out in 2010. There's a reason. It's because you can't do that. That breaks that rule. That breaks that kind of social contract. You know, country music, girl from the Midwest, loves the Opry, supports the troops, person of faith. You know, I was then now at odds reconciling these pieces that the world had said never could go together, right? And so my dad, when I told him was, you know, the phrase turn on a dime, I watched that in real life. He went from the guy that told gay jokes and thought that, you know, queer people were sinful and of the devil. And the minute I told him, in a hotel room in El Dorado Springs, Missouri, a few hours before my show there, which is his hometown, which is why he came to the show, because it was like big doings for Stan yeah, Wright. Right. His kids come back to town, mm-hmm. and, and I'd been a famous person for a long time, but I was playing his hometown, and he was excited and, you know, couldn't wait. My band was excited to see Stan Wright. You know, it was just fun. And he came to my hotel room. He always liked to sit and kind of, it was a good time to catch up when I'm getting in hair and makeup. And and it's just the two of us in the hotel room. And I said, Dad, I have to tell you something. He said, okay. And I said, you need to sit down. And I watched him like kind of reach for the bed and sit down. And I started to cry. I sat next to him and I started to cry. And he said, what's wrong? And I couldn't get any words to come out. And he said, you're sick. You're dying. You have cancer. And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm not sick. I don't have cancer. He said, what's wrong? I said, Dad, I need to tell you something that I've needed to tell you for a long time. And he said, okay, what is it? And I said, I'm, I'm scared to tell you because I don't want to lose you. And I don't want to disappoint you. He said, what is it? I said, I'm gay. He said, what? And I said, I'm gay, Dad. He said, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And he said, what about those, the guys you've dated? And, the, and I said, I'm sure, Dad. And he said, but you're so pretty. And we began talking for about two hours, and I went through a whole box of tissue and, you know, then toilet paper because I ran out of tissue. And he had a lot of questions, and we went through a lot of things. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Dad, I got to go. I got to finish getting ready. And he said, okay. And we stood up, and I said, Dad, do you love me even though? I'm gay. And he grabbed my shoulders and he squared my shoulders toward his and he said, kid, I don't love you even though I love you because I turned on a dime. I know that there are people that will listen to this and are absorbing that experience and probably some have that experience and probably some don't. So that's what a gift you got. What a gift. When you think about a a guy with an eighth grade education who went and lied to get into the Navy at 17 and was a construction worker for his whole career, when you think about how could he have turned on the dime, when we feel safe and able, we have to use our public capital and our private capital with people that know and love us. We have to be able to put that other bit of information. She's a country singer. She's a person of faith. She's always been good to us. She's a hard worker. She's ethical. She's this. She's that. And I offered that one additional piece of information. I'm gay. 
do with it what you will. And I'm so grateful that my dad and the rest of my family turned on that dime. My mother did not, but I feel on the whole really lucky. So over the course of time, you published the book, you're on the Today Show, you're on Oprah, the book comes out, the country music community hears, talks about it, morning shows across the heartland talk about it. You are for sure on the receiving end of the best and the worst of people. Mm. Mm, yeah. And how did it feel? Yeah, so I'm often asked, the day you came out, was that the best day of your life? It was a good day for sure, but the best day of my life was the morning after I didn't end my life. That's when I knew I was going to do it, and that's when I experienced that that hope. Mm. And hope mm-hmm. is, hope is, I'm convinced, the most valuable commodity. But the day I came out, yeah, I, it was nothing I didn't anticipate. Rodney was right. Rodney Crowell was right when he predicted country music is going to kind of ice her out. That happened. I got death threats, multiple death threats that were, you know, scary and not surprising. And then there were fans that, you know, of course, the LGBTQ community was very affirming liberal circles media was really good to me but the liberal fans that exist in country music were like that's great that's awesome we love the dixie chicks too right but there was a lot of you know i think that the thing that i didn't anticipate billy in that freezing out was an almost immediate kind of response that was fascinating is that the minute they can't be okay with your declaration. There's an effort to minimize it, discount it. So when you say something like this or come forward and kind of hold your industry to account or kind of say, hey, we've got some gaps here, we've got some things to work on, the first move is to say, well, she wasn't that famous ever. She wasn't really one of us anyway. She was never big enough actually for this to matter She hadn't had a hit in years. She's trying to sell records. She's trying to get attention. She's trying to be relevant. She's playing the victim card. So I was surprised that how quickly that was kind of a collective response from my industry. And what I've learned is when you speak truth to power, those in power, if they were to acknowledge, wow, that was really brave. I bet that was hard for her to do, then that somehow makes them feel like they're complicit in holding up systems of unfairness or inequity. So if you say, wow, that was really brave, we probably have work to do in country music, and you're in a powerful position, that's almost making it incumbent upon you to help address it. So by saying she didn't really matter anyway in this industry, that kind of opts you out of having to do something about it. Knowing what you know now, how you identify now, and the courage and the the fortitude you have now, and if you could put a little capsule in little Shelly's pocket, mm-hmm. then what would you tell her? I would tell her, 
around 1994, you're going to be live on CBS on television. And you're going to be nominated for an Academy of Country Music Award. And you're going to spend a good deal of time leading up to that award show in your head. And you're going to have a little fantasy that if you win that award, you're going to step on stage, grab the trophy, kiss whomever handed it to you. And you're going to say, thank you for this award. I'm gay. And you should do it. Do it. I wanted to do it. I thought about doing it. I fantasized about doing it. And I didn't do it. That's what I would tell. You think that's a fuck up? Yes. I should have done it. You're talking 1994, 1995, I think. So that's two, three years before Ellen DeGeneres came out on her sitcom, which was in 1997. And that was a massive moment, a cultural moment. You know what? I was watching with my dad. I had flown home for a funeral. My sister and my dad and I were watching Ellen after this funeral. My dad, when she came out, my dad reached for the remote control, turned off the TV and said, that's disgusting. It it adds depth and intensity to you coming out to your dad because that's probably... That informed th- that fear. That's your benchmark yep. of his tolerance. That's disgusting. And he loved her show, but he never watched it again. That's disgusting. And when I did come out to my dad in that hotel room in El Dorado, Missouri, mm-hmm. he said, why didn't you tell me? At, at some point in that long conversation we had... One of the questions, what, he got mad. He's like, why didn't you tell me? I said, Dad. He said, why? And I said, what you said about Ellen, the gay jokes. And he just put his face in his hand and cried and looked up and said, I'm so sorry. And, and parents and loved ones all over the world still now in 2023 are still hearing from their kids. I didn't tell you because that, Dad. I didn't tell you because that thing you said, Mom. It's a long journey, this, that you've been on. And I'm, I, I'm so grateful that you brought it all. It seems to me that the greatest fuck-up that we can make as human beings is to forget. You can be two things at once. You can be 100%. like really active in your faith and also be in a lifestyle that maybe doesn't subscribe fully to whatever that faith is. You can be a lot of things at once and still hold the integrity of a value system and who you are and a spirit and intention. And I don't think it's easy for anybody, this whole life experiment that we go through when we're born and sort of we're appointed our family members and parents and friends But I want to end with this, which is, I'm really happy that you still talk to your friend Janet. And the reason I say it isn't because of any reason other than sometimes the old friends that you have, even if you didn't share with them in the moment, old friends can be amazing because they're actually witnesses to the process Mm because they know where you've been, not just where you are. Yep. Yeah, there, there's something to be said for old friends, and you're one of mine. It's hard to be a human. It's hard if you're a famous person to come out as queer, but it's hard if you're a grade school teacher to come out as queer. Stakes are high for everybody. 
But to really be your authentic self is an act of courage. Shelley, thank you. I I don't really know how to say in the <laughs> the interesting thing about this particular episode and conversation is that the fuck up is not like you trip someone and they fell down. It's really what do we do when we trip ourselves and fall down and how lonely that experience can be. And I am just super, super, super grateful that you didn't pull the trigger and that your prayer was answered. And I hope that the people that listen to this, especially people who are going through their own process, really hear the hope and see just the incredible light that you are shining on people and that you did when, frankly, there was nobody in the room and in the dark to see it other than you. It's amazing. I hope people who love somebody who may be going through this self-discovery, this journey of coming out, that you think of both Shelly and her dad. Shelly Wright is living proof of just how what you see may not be what you get. Thank you, Billy. Thanks for having me. I love you, friend. I love you, too, so much. If you or somebody you know needs help, it's available 24-7 by calling or texting 988 to reach the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. Story producer Jesse Ash. Senior producers Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations Sarah Yu, Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development Sheffy Ellenswag, and Director of Marketing Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 